0: Well, we're in the Gospel of Luke, so if you haven't turned there, turn now with me to Luke chapter 5. Not too long ago, I was driving and, uh, and noticed in front of me a car that had just, it was littered with bumper stickers uh, from some that said, coexist, to let's just love everyone. But one in particular caught my eye, and the the bumper sticker said, question authority. And if we're all honest this morning, we all have trouble with authority sometimes in our lives. Uh, We want to question authority. And even now, questioning and resisting authority seems to be the national virtue. Uh, When I use the word authority, I mean someone who has the right to make judgments that binds others. Authority, though, is not the same thing as power. Power is ability like the strength to throw a stone. At the age of 15, I was the height that I am now, and I had the power and ability to drive a vehicle, but I didn't have the authority. The fact fact is, however, that God has built authority into every fabric of our life, of our universe. Our societies could not function properly without it. The opposite is anarchy, a state of lawlessness or disorder due to the lack of authority. Authority is a moral right or a moral permission slip to make judgments and exercise power that's given in a particular domain with a specific term specified in the authorization given. It's a license or or permission that's been given to someone. I have to obey a policeman that pulls me over about the speeding limit, limit, but I don't have to obey him about whom I should marry or how many kids I should have. Policemen have been given authority to manage the roads, but not given authority to manage my family. To use another example, as a father, I have authority over my children. They fall within the domain that's been given me, yet my authority is limited, because in turn, I'm under a higher authority God's authority. I don't possess absolute authority to do with them however I please. Rather, it's, it's been given under the specific terms authorized to me, which was God given to me as Father. God alone is the only one who has absolute, unquestionable authority. His authority is. He has the right to tell us where to live and what to eat and how to dress, and whom to sleep with. His authority is not a subject to judicial review or job termination because we didn't vote for him, for him to come in and we didn't hire him for the job. His authority isn't subject to any human laws or powers. God's authority is above all and over all. And God possesses an intrinsic moral right to rule, to make judgments and exercise power as he sees fit. Like an author who writes whatever he pleases, so the author over all creation has authority over all of which has been made. And all this was well and good for the religious teachers. They understood this during Christ's time on earth. Except, as we'll find in this story, they didn't understand who God was. More clearly, they didn't see God fully. They didn't see God right in front of them. See, God's authority stood before them in the flesh, and they didn't believe it, and they didn't submit to it. So here's the main idea. Here's what I want you to get from this passage this morning. Jesus has the authority to touch the untouchable, to heal the unhealable, and to forgive the unforgivable. And that is my outline also. Jesus ministry here is expanding. He's becoming more and more well known, which draws more more people and with more needs and more challenges than from the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus steps into this world where pain is constant and where people are neglected, where power and control rule people, and he comes with a message of his authority over all. He is the king that we've been looking for and longing for. He has the one who has all authority to make things right. So I have three points as we walk through this passage here this morning. So first is touching the untouchable. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And if you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, it's your first time the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're looking at verses 12 through 26 this morning. So Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. So we come back to the story of Jesus' ministry. Now he comes face to face with a man who is, who is an outcast. A leper would be someone who's quarantined outside of the city or camp. And leprosy of the time was an ugly disease. It was um, nasty uh, how it affected people, but they, they, were, they were subjugated to leave the community. They were to be treated as unclean. Leviticus 13 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on his skin of his body a swelling or eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of the body, then he should be brought forth to Aaron the priest, or to one of the sons of the priest, and the priest shall examine a diseased area of the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it's a case of leprous disease. And when the priest has examined him, he shall be pronounced Unclean. To be pronounced unclean meant a leper could not worship God with people, with the community. And our man here in Luke 5 was full of leprosy, Dr. Luke says. Full of leprosy, meaning he was raw from head to foot. And not only was he unclean, but probably he was in constant pain. So to think through, putting yourself in this position now of what he's suffering with. The constant pain, but not only that, he was deemed unclean, so he had to leave. He was separate from God's people. And so the shame that would follow this man. See, in Jewish society, the leper was a reject, an outcast, an untouchable. The Pharisees of the day had developed a theory of salvation by discrimination. One must keep oneself from any contact with the sinners of the world, from the outcasts of the society. And they were to be elitists. They, they would have no dealings with these people, or Samaritans, or even tax collectors, as we'll see through Luke's gospel. And they would never, ever come close to a leper. Josephus, the ancient historian, said that lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. The leper was then like a walking corpse, and his cure was then likened to be raising the dead. It seemed impossible. And they didn't just, as I said, lose their health, but they would lose their family and their friends and their home and their livelihood. No one would be able to interact and come close to them, to see them, to talk with them, to share life with them. They were completely untouchable. They lived with no hope. They had no peace, no rights, no future, no joy. They were separate. And continuing here, he says, when he saw Jesus, when the when the leper saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. See, it would be a huge risk for this leper to make his way to Jesus. I'm sure at this point in his life, he's, he's accustomed to people avoiding him at all costs. I'm sure he, he approached with trepidation. Will Jesus, will he evade me like everyone else does in my life? Will he flinch when he sees me? Most likely people would have seen this. And most people probably would have backed away in fear. Mothers clutching their children, bystanders gasping in unbelief. So Whatever hope he might have had to return to a normal life was all wrapped up in Jesus' authority to cleanse him. And his request here centers not on Jesus' capabilities, but on his willingness to heal. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will. It wasn't like he was unsure if he could. He he knew his ability was there. It, It seems he believed he could, but the question was, would he? Maybe Jesus wouldn't even touch him. Maybe Jesus would turn away. And instead, though, he just, he throws himself down, prostrate, humbled before Jesus. And Jesus was willing, as willing as could be. And he was also able, because Jesus had the authority to cleanse. And with one touch in that electric moment, as the high voltage of divine power coursed through the strong arms of Jesus, the leper was cleansed. But I want you to notice something, friends. Something magnificent happens after Jesus touches this leper. Jesus stays clean himself. Ordinarily, when someone or something clean touches something unclean, it becomes unclean as well. But here, for the first time in history, things ran in the opposite direction as the cleanness of Jesus cleansed the, the unclean leper. His cleanness is more powerful than this man's uncleanness. And this was brand new. This was never seen before. Jesus doesn't give him instructions on what he should do to be clean, like go down to the Jordan and and dip your body in there. No, his, his word and his touch cleans this man. And his shame leaves just as quickly as the leprosy did. See, Jesus is altogether different than the teacher and the religious leaders of the day. He is the one who reaches out to touch the untouchable, to heal the unhealable, to love the unlovable. And what are the means of his ability to touch and to heal? It's the power of God spoken by Christ. The same power that would call Lazarus out of the grave and the same power that spoke the world to existence. And here, instantly, the leper is healed through the power and authority of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. And by sending him to the priest, he was sending a signal to all who were paying attention. This well-known leper, I'm sure, was now fully clean. Something that was impossible had happened. Jesus supports the law here. He says, according to the Old Testament regulations of cleansing, which Jesus respected, the man had to go to the priest to show himself now clean so that he would be allowed back into the community with people. And friends, perhaps you have come into our service this morning convinced that you're untouchable. You believe that you're an outcast in this world. And I have news, Jesus has the ability to cleanse you as well. He has the authority to restore your soul. He has the authority to rescue your relationships. He has the authority to take your shame and your fears. Whatever cleansing we need, whatever sin is troubling our conscience, whatever sorrow is is burdening and grieving our hearts, whatever relationship makes us anxious, Jesus is able to touch the hurting places in our life and make us whole. Only Jesus has his authority if we turn to him in faith. Charles Spurgeon said, the I will of an emperor may have great power over his dominions, but the I will of Christ drives death and hell before him, conquers disease, removes despair, and floods the world with mercy. The Lord's I will can put away your leprosy of sin and make you perfectly whole. See, Jesus' authority over sickness is astounding. He can touch the untouchable. But now word gets out. Look at verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So Jesus cautions him from telling anyone, but how could he not but keep the news to himself? He he tells, people see, everyone would see what happened to this man, and it causes Jesus then to be deliberate about his time, on earth, he has to get away to pray. And I keep reading this, this comes up time and again in the Gospels, and I'm continuing to be challenged in this. If the Son of God had to make the priority to spend time with the Father in prayer, how much more do we need to do the same? When everything else in our life just presses in to, to, to vie for our attention. We need to take the same drastic step that Jesus does and to pull away and to spend time with the Father. How often are we prideful in our thinking that we can just muster enough strength to go through the next day? If Jesus, the Son of God, says, I need to pull away to spend time with the Father. Friends, may we show the same amount of concern for our prayer life as Jesus does here. So, first, Jesus has the authority to touch the untouchable. Second, healing the unhealable. Verse 17, And one of those days as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And what a scene this would be, right? If anyone suddenly came through the roof, I'm sure I would stop preaching. A typical house in Palestine had two stories with the, the, the top area, the roof area, serving as the second story. And it was flat, typically only six feet above the ground. Wooden beams were laid across top of stone or mud walls with a layer of reeds and thorns and several inches of, inches of clay on top of them. So they, they dug through. And we might expect that Jesus would be annoyed with this interruption and the presumption of these men. And it just seems like Jesus' ministry on earth is just constant interruption. And yet he responds with patience and grace. What a challenge that is to me. And when Jesus sees their faith, he says he acts. But it's not how they think he will. These men here are determined to get their friend in front of Jesus. And when he sees them, and he doesn't say then to him, get up and walk, instead he says, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine their response? Like, okay, we did all this work, Jesus, and uh, we, he, he can't walk. That's not what we asked for. But the fact is, Jesus knows something the man doesn't know about himself. He has a much bigger healing than a physical condition. Jesus knows, he knows and understands his physical issues, but he knows his suffering We need to understand the main problem in a person's life is never just our physical suffering, but our sin. So Jesus is going to heal the issue that is much deeper than his inability to walk. It's like Jesus is saying, you came to me asking for your body to be healed, but you're not going deep enough to understand yourself, to understand the very depth of longings inside of you. You're not looking deep enough into the caverns of your heart. This man believes that if he could only walk again, then things would be better. That he'd be sad, he'd be happy, he would never again complain, but that's not true. The roots of discontentment of the human heart go much deeper than the physical sufferings that we see. The Bible says that our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something other than Jesus Christ. Whether that's our career, or our family, or a certain relationship, or the fact that we want to prove someone wrong with our lives, all of us in some way are building on something other than Christ. And so we end up saying, if I have this, if I get my deepest wish, then everything will be okay. When I get this, when this happens, I know that I will finally feel respected. Or when I get that item, when I have the bigger home that, that, that I would like to have and to use, or a nicer car, or, or when my kids are happy, or when my kids are grown and out of the house and have kids of their own, or, or maybe when I'm healthy, when I'm finally healthy, Then I'll be happy. And in that, we begin building our identity on the next thing. What is it for you? Is it love in a relationship? Is it respect for your job? Is it the freedom to do exactly what you want to do with your life? Is it comfort from the trials and sufferings that you've been facing? Have you convinced yourself that if you get what you want, you will finally be happy and fulfilled and content? If only I could be healed, then everything would be fine. Are we more like the man on the stretcher being brought down by his friends? And when we do that, when we think that way, what we're doing is we're making those things mini-saviors in our lives. But the tragic thing is that when we get it, when we secure that mini-savior, it will eventually turn on us, and we will feel more empty and more angry and more unhappy than we did before. See, friends, those mini-saviors in our life never satisfy us. They only zap our energy and love. And Jesus is saying to this man this morning and to us, if you have me, I will actually fulfill you. And if you fail me, I will always forgive you. He's the only Savior who can do all of that. All the other Saviors that we run after in this world will only crush us and destroy us. But Jesus comes to bring us life. Some, I'm sure, here or even logging online, have come to church to come and to watch and to be a part of what's happening here, and you're looking for help, you're looking for guidance, for encouragement, and peace. And maybe you just come to get a little boost to your spiritual life, but you're fooling yourself thinking that if you get this boost, this bump that you're looking for, that you can just go back to the search to fulfill yourself with anything other than Jesus Christ. See, almost always when we first come to Christ, we say, something else is my deepest wish, my deepest longing, and Jesus says to us, you need to go deeper than that. Something yet deeper. We we need a deeper healing, a, a real cleansing. We need forgiveness. Sometimes, if we're honest, we we look deep within our hearts and we see our sin, we walk away thinking that there's no way that God can forgive us. That leads me to my third point, forgiving the unforgivable. It shouldn't be surprising to us that the ministry of Jesus was attracting more than just the sick and the the demon-possessed but it begins to attract the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from all parts of the country. There is no motive stated on why these teachers and Pharisees are here. But it seems clear as we walk through Luke's gospel that they're there to test the teaching of Jesus Christ. They're there to check on the truth of the stories that are being circulated about this teacher and healer and, and one who, who cast out demons. So he says, Luke says in verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who has the authority to forgive sins in this world? That's that's the issue. See, the teachers of the law were the religious lawyers who supported the development of the extra-biblical tradition, and they questioned Jesus in their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, they're right. They're exactly right. The teachers of the law are spot on. Only God can forgive sin. Because all sin is ultimately against God. Do you understand that, friends? Only God can forgive sin because all sin is ultimately against God. Every sin ever committed is fundamentally against God. That person doesn't ultimately own themselves. God owns them. We are made in the image of God, made for God's purposes. So when you sin against someone or even yourself, it's a real and actual wrong thing. But the roots of its wrongness is ultimately against God and his image. So you need to understand how, how sin, every sin, becomes, it's very important to understand this because there's no throwaway sins the essence and nature of sin is rebellion against God himself sin is true rejection of God it's orphaning yourself it's pulling yourself away from God and and when you begin to see the magnitude of your sin you will respond like Peter did earlier in this chapter you are humbled and humiliated and brought low you can't stand to be in the presence of God because you see yourself. And the point of the gospel isn't that we stay there. That's not what Christ says. No, he picks up Peter to see him. You see, when we honestly see ourselves for who we truly are, then we begin to see the greatness of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, friends, we should never get over the fact that god would forgive us god truly forgives the unforgivable in jesus christ and these teachers are astounded by his words so when jesus in verse 22 when jesus perceived their thoughts he answered them why do you question in your hearts just a side note just a good reminder cuz the bible says this god knows all of your thoughts I hope that freaks you out today. (laughs) He sees everything. It should comfort you also as we walk through this because God sees everything. And yet he goes after us. Jesus knows the secrets in the hearts of these men as they sit here and question him. He knows the motives of their heart. He knows what's rolling around in their minds. See, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, the teachers are shocked and angry. They believe that Jesus is blaspheming God. And the issue is whether he has the authority to forgive sin. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. That's why when Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins have been really against me. And the only person who can possibly say that to a human being would be their creator. And so you, un- you understand more their shock now? Jesus is before them telling them his, their sin was against him. Because he's God. He says, why do you question your hearts? And then he says in the, the explanation, which is easier? Verse 23, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The biggest issue in your life is whether or not we see Christ as the authority of God himself. Jesus, the religious leaders here know that Jesus is claiming more than to be a miracle worker. He's claiming to be the Lord of the universe. And he's driving home the truth that Jesus is more than a mere man. He is God. Like everything else that Jesus said, these words are simple but profound. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? At At what level they are both easy to say? After all, words are just words. But the logic of the question is easy to follow. It's easier to say something that cannot be visually verified to say something that can be visually substantiated. The easier the claim from the observer's point of view is the claim to forgive sins, since one cannot easily prove it wrong. And the issue is this. Jesus' claim, an empty word now, or is it a real thing? Does Jesus' declaration of forgiveness have God's power and God's word behind it? And in this way, Jesus links the healing tightly with the spiritual message that he bears in his person. Forgiveness is something that comes from God's throne. So who knows whether it's real or has been granted? But when someone says, now rise and walk, everyone knows right away whether this person who says he has the power to heal. So either the paralytic will get up and walk or he won't, and then the person speaking has been exposed as a fraud. Jesus is laying it all out here. And note here in this, and I won't get into greater detail, although we'll see it through Luke's gospel, but he calls himself the son of man. It's the first time in Luke's gospel that he calls himself. He'll do it 24 more times through the end of the book. And Jesus reveals himself as the son of man and indicates the extent of the authority that he possesses. If the man gets up to walk, the miracle talks about the son of man and his authority to not only heal but also forgive sin. In the Old Testament, no one, no priest, no prophet, no theologian had any such authority that Jesus is claiming. They could pronounce in God's name that God had forgiven or would forgive personal sins, but none had the authority to pronounce forgiveness in his own name as Jesus Christ is doing here. See Jesus knows what these teachers are thinking, and so he deliberately takes the first step towards the cross. He is not simply a miracle worker. He is the savior of the world. And he knows that he's going to be killed for this. He's taking this decisive, irreversible step down the path towards his death. By taking this step, by by stating what he does before these teachers, Jesus is putting a down payment on our forgiveness. and what happens is it true is jesus really our savior verse 25 and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying god in this moment jesus has the authority to heal this man's body just as he has the power to heal your life Just like Jesus has the power to work in your career and give you a spouse and give you respect you've been working for all these years, he has the authority to do that. But Jesus knows that it's not nearly deep enough to your greatest need. We need to be forgiven of our sin against him. That is the only way our discontentment will be healed. Jesus truly forgives the unforgivable. Jesus acts with the power and authority of God to heal and with the power and authority of God to announce forgiveness of sins. And all sin begins with the lies told to oneself. Sin has a capacity to deceive us so that people don't recognize the product of their action for what it truly is. And the consequences of sin, however, follow the sinner like a string of cans attached to a car. Jesus is announcing that he has the authority to act on God's behalf. He can pronounce forgiveness because God had already done so. Having forgiven now the paralytic, he proceeded to release him from his bondage and his legs to give him the strength to walk to the glory of God. And how do the people respond? Last verse, verse 26. An amazement seized them all And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. I love that phrase, amazement seized them all. When was the last time you were amazed at Jesus Christ? When was the last time you were astonished at the extraordinary things Christ has done for you? I mean, as Christians, we have seen God do remarkable things, haven't we? I mean, first and foremost, that he saved us. I I gotta tell you, one of the, the most enjoyable aspects of pastoral ministry is sitting in membership interviews. And you think, that sounds boring. It's not. It's rehearsing the remarkable things that God has done. Amazement, seizing them all. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He lived in our flesh to offer God the righteous obedience that we owed him. He died in our place as an offering to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. This is what we should be rejoicing in, friends. But one thing I notice in this is that there are many who see and hear the message of Jesus Christ, to see and hear the power and authority of Christ and they leave unchanged we don't read here that many turned and understood their sin and followed Christ they were amazed this is the gospel of amazement but it didn't humble them perhaps some were convinced that they were too unclean perhaps that's you You've sinned too much for God to save you. but Christ didn't turn away from this man and he won't turn away from your humble prayers either. So turn to Christ in faith this morning. The last thing I want to mention to our Christian friends here this morning, Christ's cleansing of the leper demonstrates two things for us, his divine compassion and his divine authority. Cleansing a man is not the same thing as saying that on the grounds of compassion that dirt should no longer be strictly regarded as dirt. Cleansing presumes that dirt is dirty and ugly and dangerous and unacceptable. Jesus doesn't minimize dirt. He just cleans him. And so I ask, whom do we think today as unclean? It's an important question for us to ask. The church has a savior who cleanses the unclean. Yet as a church, we have a history of rejecting the unclean. In our history, not just our specific, but the church has regarded persons with AIDS as unclean during the early days of that disease. And many Christians today believe that those who struggle with same-sex attraction and desires are unclean and ultimately unwanted in the church. Or drug addicts, or alcoholics, or homeless seem to be the lepers of the day. Who is that you regard as unclean? And if we're tempted to withdraw from them, we need to be reminded of our Savior. When we think of Jesus and this man it comes for help, the leper comes and asks if Jesus will cleanse him. The word will in this question, both in the leper's request and in Jesus' answer, is the Greek word for wish or desire. The leper was asking about Jesus' deepest desire, and Jesus revealed his deepest desire was to heal him. When we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the, the complete picture given to us of who Jesus is, what's, what stands out most strongly? Is it that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and longings? And he is the very one whose holiness causes Peter to just buckle in fear, fully aware of his sinfulness? Is it his, his amazing teaching, the one who knows the hearts of everyone who comes in contact with I mean, it's the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading Luke's gospel. The most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, and heals, and embraces, and forgives those who are least deserving. And he truly desires to do that. Jesus doesn't back away, he moves toward them. This is our Savior. And Christian, let this bake your noodle today. Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers when he spoke to them and touched them in the earthly ministry. He's closer today through his spirit who indwells in us and Christ's own heart who envelops his people with embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. His actions on earth in a body reflected his heart, and that same heart now acts in the same ways toward us, for we are his body. So may we leave this place now, this morning, more in love with Jesus, and I pray more assured of his love towards us than when we came in. The love of Jesus envelops us and keeps us and holds us tight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every way that you've spoken to us this morning through your word. And we know that in the life to come, the hours we have spent together will seem like passing moments. What a joy it is, God, to gather with your people. And we know from your word that you clearly see into us and in ways that we don't even see ourselves. It's not always clear to us. We ask that you would show us ourselves. And you would forgive us for our pride in thinking that we know more than you. And that you would forgive us of the sin of seeking treasures on earth more than seeking you. And we pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us from our sins. And that you would forgive us for our distant hearts. And we see in our Lord Jesus an amazing display of your love to those who are broken and needy. We pray that you would teach us of your great goodness to us in Christ, of your amazing love. Father, win our hearts to you. Make our hearts soft in your hands. And teach us to love as you have loved us. And we pray this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.